0: Let's uh, pause and pray, Father. What is man? What are we that you would be mindful of us? And that's true. But it's also true that you are mindful of us, and your your thoughts are countless toward us. And so, as you desire our good, I pray that you would give it to us in this hour through your word, that you would speak for our help, for our encouragement, for our correction, for our needs, for our joy. We thank you to be able to be together. Thank you that you have... Unified us under one name. Thank you that you have promised us and guaranteed us a hope that transcends our circumstances. We thank you for not only your desire to be near, Lord, we're in awe of how you made that possible. So Lord, help us And be gracious to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. I admittedly am a millennial. I said it out loud. Um, That's my generation, 1980 through 2000, something like that. Um, And some of you are of other generations. And each generation is... Known for things and has come to be known for even some of their shortcomings. And maybe some of the positive things your generation is known for is also their shortcomings. For instance, millennials are somewhat known, if you want to generalize all people in that age bracket, uh, for questioning everything. And in our culture, you see how that's played out, right? Why do we have to have genders? Why do we have to have marriage between man and woman? Well, they create their own answers to escape their own guilt and so on and so forth. But sometimes the questioning that comes as a characteristic of that generation leads to positive things. Leads to really getting to the genesis or the reason and reinvigorating life into why we do what we do or say what we say. Or go where we go, whatever the case may be. One of those things that I've questioned, especially as I've become a parent, is, is when my kids disobey somehow, which normally involves fighting each other or saying something to their mother that they shouldn't say. Um, sometimes you, maybe you grew up and were told, say you're sorry when you do something like that. Say you're sorry. And in my spirit, when I, when I go to parent them, or this started a long time ago, I just balk at that. Because it's one thing to apologize, right? And maybe that's, you know, polite to do. But I want them to actually be sorry, right? I want them to actually feel in their soul the weight and reality of their sin. Saying sorry when you're not is not going to solve it. I want you to understand what caused you to behave that way. It's a wicked heart. It is so much more than just sibling rivalry whatever. You're born in sin. And when you come to acknowledge that, that's the beginning of a new life. That's the beginning of of what we're going to investigate today, which is repentance. Which leads to life. So we're taking a look here at John the Baptist and his ministry as we've made our way to Matthew chapter 3. And this is what he's preaching, okay? In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's preaching. Preaching is heralding. It's proclaiming. It's not having a discussion. It is is telling out loud and maybe at a volume that is loud something that everyone needs to know. That's what he's doing in the wilderness. And what he's he's saying is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now we're going to deal a lot with repentance today. But first I want to deal with the fact that this is when we see this term come into the gospel of Matthew, kingdom of heaven. In all the other writings, it'll come out as the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. Okay, But in Matthew, it is kingdom of heaven. Now, there could be several reasons for that. We've already talked about that when I introduced Matthew's gospel to us. It could be that as he's writing to Jews, they have a, Uh, a sense about them in in which they don't like to say the name of the Lord out loud or just use it a lot. They have a reverence for it that they don't allow it to come off of their unclean lips uh, just all the time, okay? And there's some error in that, we recognize, because through Jesus we know Him as our Father. We speak to Him. We speak of Him a lot, so it's okay to do that, right? But they had this kind of reverent fear, and that was one of the ways that it was communicated was they didn't say his name a lot out loud. So he could be appealing to that, allowing them to hear the message um, a little easier to their sensitive ears. I don't know. But it really doesn't matter because what he's talking about is a citizen citizenship of a place that has come and is coming. The kingdom of heaven. It's created, it's sure, but it's not here yet. And also, it is here, because it comes through Jesus. He presents to us and inaugurates what the kingdom is and what it looks like for you to be a part of it. Citizenship in the kingdom is seen in the way that Jesus operates in this world, and then as His Spirit is put into His people, then they operate according to the the rules and customs of the kingdom of heaven and not this world. Or they're supposed to. So the difference comes in repentance. Okay, Because if you walk according to the ways of this world, then most likely you're sinning. Because this world is ruled by the devil who's a liar and a sinner. So if you're following those customary ways of how this thing goes here, you are sinning at some point. But to walk according to the kingdom of heaven, or to live according to that kingdom, or to live as a citizen of that kingdom, you're living in faith and holiness and righteousness, which is what God is creating here. So he's brought his kingdom through Jesus, through his teaching, through his spirit, and he is building it, and then actually he's going to bring the new heavens and the new earth, right? for us to dwell with him in that kingdom actually fully realized. But the Bible speaks about this kingdom coming. Okay? Daniel 2:44, and in those days, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. That's how we know that Daniel is prophesying about the kingdom of heaven. It's an eternal kingdom. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring to them an end, and it shall stand forever. Okay, The eternality of the kingdom of heaven outlasts and destroys every other kingdom that exists. Kingdoms come and go, but the kingdom of the Lord, the kingdom of heaven, stands forever. (coughs) And what he's communicating, John, is to the people is, look, the realities of this kingdom are pressing in on this world, which presents you with quite a conundrum. (laughs) Because you're a citizen of earth, that is passing away, and the kingdom of heaven, which is eternal and not passing away, is now here. And you're not naturally a citizen of that place, but you can be. So John, as the, old, the last Old Testament prophet, that's how you need to look at him, is, is actually proclaiming a message of hope. As we'll see in a little bit when he addresses the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he's telling people where to find salvation. He's preparing them for his cousin, right? who is the Messiah, who is the Savior, who is the King of the kingdom. He's preparing them to be brought in, not only as his royal subjects, but his brothers and sisters in the faith, his uh, children under God. And Jesus sends his disciples out with this message. And he tells them in Matthew 10, 7, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, or it's near, or here it is. Okay? And come listen to Jesus if you want to know what this kingdom is and how it's come, how it's got here. Let's talk about Kingdom fulfillment, then. One of the ways that people are supposed to understand that this kingdom from Daniel 2 has arrived is the fact that John is doing what he's doing. Okay? We read this quote in Matthew 3, verse 3 For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And directly from Isaiah 40, it reads a little bit different. A voice cries, In the wilderness, "Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our our God. Why is this what he points to to talk about um, how John the Baptist is a fulfillment of the kingdom coming? Because there is going to be somebody... Who is proclaiming the great and awesome day of the Lord. That he's coming. And with him comes the kingdom. It's not separated from him. It's part of him. Okay? So, what must happen in order for that to take place? A preparation. What's the preparation? Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Or how he quotes it here, make his path straight. What is that? Well, As we're talking about, going back to verse 2, repentance, if that is the first part of the message, is that's what you need to do, because the kingdom of heaven is here, then that means, in order to make paths straight and prepare for that, you need to repent. Cry for mercy, or here's, here's the big one, desire a savior, because you recognize that as the kingdom comes, also comes with it the wrath of that king, by which you will die. So, to make straight the paths or the reception of the king to come in in victory, his people repent of their sins and their heart is prepared for him to come in and replace it with a new heart full of his spirit and desire for good, life, remove the heart of stone, replace it with the heart of flesh and build his kingdom with those people. So, John is calling for people to be ready for the Messiah. You don't get ready by dressing up your house or dressing up your body or doing things on the outside. The way that he's calling for people to get ready, all the way back to Isaiah 40, is to prepare your heart. If the first part of the gospel, but it's all entangled, uh, if you don't recognize your need for a Savior then you're not going to look for one. You're not going to need one. He's going to come and go, and it makes no difference to you. I mean, it will. You don't have a choice in the matter. But you will not care. You don't need that. But if you want to be a part of the kingdom, you have to recognize that you're unworthy to be a part of the kingdom but he's coming to save you and to make you part of the kingdom. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and honey. 2 Kings eight. Jesus even alludes to the fact that John the Baptist is Elijah who was to come 2 Kings 1.8 describes Elijah uh, when, he's making, getting re- when he's making prophecy at the beginning of 2 Kings. They answered him, they're describing Elijah. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. It's also described that Elijah ate what John ate. And that signifies that garment of camel's hair, the leather belt... The eating the locust and wild honey, which people still do in the Middle East. to eat these locusts, are like grasshoppers. Uh, it's poor people food. It's poor people clothes. Right? He's destitute. On behalf of his calling. That's just one way he's recognized. He's not saying it's good. He's just saying, look, the precursor to Christ's coming is destitute in the desert. But what matters here is the power of what he proclaims. And that God will even take the foolish things because we'll look down on the poor and the destitute as if they have nothing to offer society. And God says, no, he is the most important man right now as my son comes with my kingdom. And guess what? Everybody goes out there to hear from him. So he's coming in the spirit of Elijah. Elijah is prophesying at the beginning of 2 Kings um, some not so good things for a king, that he's going to die. And Elijah is just speaking the word of the Lord. And John is speaking the word of the Lord. And he's trying to help prepare people, right? Because what they're facing is this kingdom wrath. Kingdoms and nations and countries fight throughout history to assert power and dominance and it all pales in comparison to the kingdom of heaven which will rule absolutely and completely and without end. And every other kingdom that has ever existed has offended the king of this kingdom because not only is he king of this kingdom, but he's king of the whole universe. He is the creator of it all. And all of his creation has decided to offend him, rebel against him, and become his enemies. Well, you don't last if you're an enemy of God. He's the most powerful king that has ever or will ever exist. And you don't escape him. So, let's go back to Matthew 3 first here. So I already told you, verse 5, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. By the way, if you look on a map, that whole region that's going out to this poor person in the desert that's just saying out loud a bunch of things that sound really intense and crazy, it would be like, if, if this is where John was, it would be like taking a big circle past Smithville, all over the North Lane, even probably a little bit south of the river, and back around past Cameron, all of that area is coming out to hear John. They're being drawn because of what he's proclaiming. He's proclaiming the word of God. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now if we go back to what we talked about in preparing the way of the Lord in that quote from Isaiah 40 in verse 3. One way that you prepare is by heeding warnings. When somebody tells you that a tornado is coming, you prepare for it by going into a basement or a shelter. So you're ready. So what he's saying to these Pharisees and Sadducees is who has prepared you or warned you for what's to come and what's coming. Kingdom wrath. Kingdom wrath. Romans 5, 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him, that is, Jesus, from what? The wrath of God. Ephesians 5, 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Colossians 3, 6, On account of these the wrath of God is coming. 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's not fun to talk about the wrath of God, right? And we're a culture that likes fun things. I had a foolish pastor one time tell me, my people hear enough about hell and their sin, I'm just going to encourage them before they start their week. Fool! People are doomed under the wrath of God. Now! And they're dying and only to inherit the wrath of God while he's provided for you a way of escape. And that's what John is saying to the Pharisees. He knows they're wicked men. And he says, there is a way of escape. Who warned you about it? Why are you out here? The wrath of God, and I've said this before, is the most terrifying reality in all the universe. And we have to acknowledge it. We have to acknowledge that it exists. Because we have to develop a reverent fear for who God is. And what's he hate? He hates unholiness. He hates unrighteousness. He hates impurity. And those things used to, or still do, characterize us. Or those things tempt us. And we have to learn to hate them. Like God hates them. This isn't some holier-than-thou speech. This is the reality that presents itself... In this world. That the reason we need a Savior, the reason there is a wrath of God, is because we have sinned. His wrath is coming. And he himself offers a way of escape from his own wrath. Because he poured it out on his son, or Jesus drank the whole cup of it. That's the most most intense thing about the cross. It's not necessarily the nails and and the flogging and all that. It's the wrath of God. That Jesus is drinking on behalf of his people. Could you do that? You, You would crumble. I would crumble under the thought of having to drink the cup of his wrath for people that are in the process of killing me. You and I would quickly point to the injustice of such a thing and try and worm our way out of it. Or we would simply pass out from all the pressure and terror. But Jesus drinks it. Jesus drinks it. And he delivers us from it. And so John says, notice what he calls them, all right? He calls them like a gaggle or like a group of vipers. He, In other words, they're supposed to be those who are feeding Israel, okay, feeding God's people. Instead, he he labels them with a moniker that, that delineates them as those who are poisoning Israel. Poisoning. You can go to Lamentations and you can read there what God thinks and what God will do with those who are supposed to be feeding his people and are yet poisoning them. He's stored up some special wrath for those. That's why he tells teachers of his people and shepherds, not many of you should become one because you'll incur a stricter judgment. That verse called me to ministry. I don't know. I'm here. So, okay, kingdom wrath, right? Verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So what's kingdom fruit then? Let's say we repent. What's fruit? Now here's something we need to know about repentance. Repentance is not a one-time event. It's not an initial emotional response to your sin and His holiness. That's not what repentance is. It may begin that way. But repentance is an ongoing turning from sin. It's a lifelong process of killing the flesh and the deeds of the body and living to the spirit. Okay? Because Romans 8, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And he's not talking about just physically. If you live according to the deeds of the flesh, you will die. But if you are living in a manner that seeks to put those things away and to live this new life with this new heart and this new spirit you've been given, that's repentance. It's an uh, an abandoning abandoning and a hatred of former dispositions. Okay? There was a former life that I lived before I was brought into the kingdom. And I hate it. You know, one thing I've learned, I've learned, I've learned several things from a lot of you. Uh, just watching you or listening to you, simple things. But, but one thing uh, that I learned from my wife in particular was, you know, it's one thing to have an emotion of like, ah, I did that again. I, why do I do that? I hate that. It's another thing to actually have a, such an uh, intense emotion about things that are wrong that you want to kill it. It's what, it's what uh, Romans 8 and, and what the whole, this whole book that John Owen wrote in the 1600s called, um, um, uh, we did a podcast on it, Mortification of Sin. It is killing those things. You hate it so much that you will do whatever it takes to kill it. Like Jesus said, you'll cut your hand off or you'll pluck your eye out. You hate what offends God because you are now a loving citizen of His and His kingdom. And you live to please Him. And you trust that the things that He's told you and the things He's revealed to you and the things He commands you bring life and happiness, and joy. And you've seen that, and you've tasted the things of God, and you know that they're good, and so the things that aren't of God, you want to kill. And you recognize the intensity of those sins brought Jesus to a cross that required a perfect life to appease the wrath of God for those things. You have to get to that point where it is so putrid to you that you can't stand the thought of doing it again. There's a shirt that I want to buy this year, and it ju- and it just comes from that. It comes from Romans eight, it comes from John Owen. It's an actual biblical phrase, but it's and it's used in a maybe a a way that appeals to the cool kids today. But the the thing, the shirt says, "Do you mortify, bro? Like, <laughs> are you in? Are you invested in that? Are you interested in that? You want to kill that?" Gosh, you know, we play around with sin like it's a toy. You you have to meditate on what that led to. You're breaking the law. You're offending the holiness of God. Led to. The only remedy being the perfection of God made flesh. And then... put on a sinner's cross and crucified under the wrath of God. That's what your sin leads to. That's, that's the big thing. The little things are the outcomes of your sin. It leads to brokenness of your home. It leads to problems in your finances. It leads to problems in your health. But we want to play. We want to play around. We want to have our cake and eat it too. We, we have to hate this stuff. It's, it's not enough to just be like, ah, darn it. Did it again. No. So what's the fruit? <laughs> John fifteen five, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, understand that the the, the probable context of John 15 and the fruit that he's talking about here is holiness. Okay, A lot of times we hear that and we think, oh, that means like fruit in evangelism. Well, you're not going to have actual fruit in evangelism if you're not holy to begin with, I would argue. But what he's talking about here is holiness. Fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such these things, there is no law. Because when you get to the bottom of chapter 15, what he's talking about is if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll do the things that kingdom citizens do, that I do, that characterize who I am, that characterize what love is, what patience is, what kindness is, what goodness is. That's the fruit. And of course, that'll be an aroma of Christ and salvation to those who are being saved. And to those who are not being saved, it'll be the aroma of death. Why? Because it presents them with the reality that they are not holy and not righteous. And they understand that as they have offended those things, they are surely sentenced to die. But holiness is the fruit. Christian maturity is the fruit. And we get that through being with Him. And if, if you are here last week, we heard that wonderful sermon from Piper in which he uh, gave us a great explanation of what it means to abide in Christ. Abide in His Word. Because man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. We live, we eat, we feast there. We get our nutrition to be able to have life there. If we don't, we shrivel up and die. So, you're abiding in Him, you're tied to Jesus, then there is much fruit. And at the end here, I have a quote from Spurgeon that tells us what our relationship with Christ does to our sin. And that plays into how we are made perfect in the kingdom. At the great day of the Lord. Okay? It's amazing. Verse 9. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree. Therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, John's baptizing for repentance. An appeal for cleansing with water. An acknowledgment, a confessing that they are guilty of things that are punishable by law. This is repentance is turning, right? A lot of people will tell you, like, hey, it's a military thought of, you know, you're you're headed one way and you do an about face and you turn the other way. And that's fine. But look at how it's how it looks practically in real life. First Thessalonians 1 9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is a, a point of contention that we had with missionaries in Africa one time, is when people from these tribes that were animistic and into some sort of Muslim idol worship when they were saved, uh, the missionaries didn't want us to discuss getting rid of their idols immediately. Because they saw that as their protection, as their you know, kind of hope, like evil's going to come in if they get rid of them. And that's all they'd ever known. And they wanted us to ease into that. And, and uh, one thing that I, Professor lettison was like, no, you turn to God from idols. He becomes your only hope. He becomes your only safety. He becomes your only um, joy, he becomes your only prize, he becomes your only rock and sustainer. They have to turn. We have to turn from these things. And guess what? God is patient and God is kind, and we have an ongoing, lifelong turning from these things. But there's some things, right, that happen immediately. One of them is from worshiping someone or something else to God. Because you can't worship God and another thing. Idols. Idols are not always carved images. There are lots of things. Could be whatever the case may be. I mean, you name it. Throughout history, throughout cultures, thousands. What are you placing in a place that only God deserves. Worship, devotion, time, resources. What gives you more hope than God? What gives you more gladness than God? What gives you more peace than God? What gives you more joy than God? Those things are idols. Because they can't provide what God provides because God is God and they're not. So the Thessalonians' repentance actually looked like we're stopping serving God idols, and we're worshiping God. You know, your memory verse this week, 2 Chronicles 16, is a chapter that talks about King Asa. And King Asa, for the most part, was a good king. It said his heart was true to the Lord or blameless to the Lord all his days, even though he screwed up majorly at the end, and partway in the middle, because what he did in the middle was he did not get rid of all the high places. You know what high places are? They're places of idol worship in the culture. And the king of Israel was commanded by the Lord to destroy every one of those because only worship belongs to God, to Yahweh. He started the process, but he didn't do it completely. God still loved him. God was still patient of him. God still allowed these things to be written of him in his word, but he was imperfect. So we have that. We have that. We have the imperfection that we haven't destroyed every idol yet. But you better be about the business of it. You better have a desire. You better have not only an intention, but an effort in doing it. Otherwise, that idol will quickly take over. I want to give you a case study here of what it looks like to really repent versus what it looks like to not. Okay? Uh, Psalm 51, 1 through 4, David. notice what he says against you you only have I sinned repentance is God focused it, it is a acknowledgement that you have offended him okay now this is what Repentance is not. Then, when Judas, his betrayer, Jesus' betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself what's the difference between him and david this is the difference maybe oh come on it's a good one 2 corinthians 7:10 for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death i don't doubt that Judas was upset about what he did, right? He returned the silver, so he wasn't getting that benefit. And then he hanged himself, so he wasn't living any longer. Why did he do that? Because he couldn't live with the guilt. And he didn't trust that the man he'd been following for three years was able to do anything about it. David does. David repents directly to God because David understands something before 1 John was ever written. That if we we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Because David understands, read the Psalms, David knows God like nobody knows God. David understands that God is not only righteous and holy and just, but God is merciful and gracious and kind. That's what repentance leads to. It runs to him and says, God, I've made a mess of this. I've offended you. And that breaks my heart. So I'm asking you to forgive me. That's repentance. And it's ongoing. It's not just today. It's always... Sinclair Ferguson, in a wonderful book that I'll recommend to you at the end of this, it's called The Grace of Repentance. He wrote this, Repentance is as necessary to salvation by faith as the ankle is to walking. The one does not act apart from the other. I cannot come to Christ in faith without turning from sin and repentance. And I would add to that, you can't live with Christ in faith without a constant repentance. You're battling the flesh. You're not in heaven. You're not perfect. You need this. That's why it's important to know that He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. It's a lifelong, what He also says in the book, it's a lifelong restoration of godliness. It's returning us to our condition that we would have had before the Garden of Eden. He is conforming us into the image of His Son. And that is all worked out through a a daily repentance of the things that are ungodly. Shedding of the skin, so to speak. A breaking of habits and desires that were of the old man. You understand that from all of Scripture, this has been God's call to His people. Jeremiah four: 4 Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So circumcision, the sign of the covenant with Abraham, all right, was more than just a physical act. It was a foreshadowing and a precursor and a communication of what needs to happen in order to be in this covenant with God. We have to cut off the flesh, cut off its lifeline. What's that look like in your life? How are you doing that? You got safeguards on your computer? You hanging out with people who are drinking? When you had a problem with it? You 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 hanging out with people who like to gossip and murmur? How are you killing it? I want you to understand this also about repentance. Note, as you pray for people who are given over to their sin, have nothing to do with repentance, understand what's spoken of in Acts and in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. In other words, it's grace that we're able to see our sin. Paul, Acts 9, encounters the glory of Christ on the road to Damascus, not acknowledging his sin. The glory of Jesus confronts him Paul knows he's a sinner. Isaiah 6. Isaiah sees this great, awesome vision of the Lord in his holy, on his holy throne, right? And what's Isaiah's first response? Woe is me. I am undone. And then God cleanses him. Peter, seeing the amazing glory of Jesus recognizes that he's unworthy, you get a contrast by the glory of God in Christ that reveals sin. So if he brings you to the place where he allows you to see his glory, he is also allowing you to see your sin. And there, at that moment, repentance begins. Charles Spurgeon says this, Repentance will not make you see Christ, but to see Christ will give you repentance. Right? When you know Jesus, you are aware that you are not like Him. And only He is pleasing to the Father. Therefore, you are, at that moment, utterly undone. So what's the remedy for you brothers and sisters who are trying to live in repentance? See Jesus. You see more of his glory. You see more of his ways. You see more of his goodness. You will hate your sin. That's the only remedy. You'll not follow the schemes of the devil. You'll not give in to the desires of your flesh because he is more valuable, more beautiful, and more precious than your sin. So you must see Christ. And that will lead to repentance. And I pray for some of you that God will grant you that. That you'll receive that from Him today. So take these few moments to respond to Him. And then we'll stand and sing.